If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to John, John chapter 13. The gentlemen are going to be coming forward, and if you don't have a Bible today, we have one that we'd like to give you as our free gift. Just try to uh, give them the old bid sign. Let them know that you want. Uh, let you let let them know you want a Bible that is marked in the scripture passage that we are going to be examining today. John, chapter thirteen. My wife and I watched a movie a few years ago called Get Low. I don't expect that too many of you have probably seen that. It wasn't very well known, um, but it's a movie about a reclusive old hermit. Uh, It's set in the 1930s, and this reclusive old hermit's name is Felix Bush. He lives lives far away from the town, the townspeople. He has a big Duck Dynasty beard. He looks like a mountain man. See, you have heard of Duck Dynasty. Uh, He's a mountain man, and all the people in the town are kind of afraid of him. His is the house that the kids will dare each other to go out to and just touch. His is the house, his property is the place that people drive by quickly. The few times people do get a glimpse of Felix, they're scared because there are all kinds of rumors swirling around about what this guy is about and what he's like. They think maybe he's a murderer. Maybe he's currently a murderer. Maybe he's made some sort of pact with the devil. People are scared of Felix. But Felix shows up in town one day, looking like the mountain man that he is, and the first and only stop that he makes is to the funeral parlor. He goes to the funeral parlor and uh, tells the director there that he would like to purchase a funeral for himself, and he tells the funeral director that he would like to be there for his funeral. The funeral director, of course, says, you will be. And he says, no, I want to be alive at my funeral. I want you to throw a funeral for me that I actually attend alive, and I want to tell my story, and I want to hear what people have to say about me. That's kind of a funny premise for a movie. And the movie is, does have its funny moments. But the movie's actually pretty serious. Because the movie is all about, as the movie unfolds, we find out that Felix has uh, some very difficult things in his past. Forty years earlier, he had been dating a girl from the town, but he had also been having an affair with her married sister. He had been planning on running away with this woman. And when she did not show up at their appointed meeting place, he went to her house to find out that her husband had found out and burned the house down around both of them. See, it gets serious. And so, Felix, in an act, a lifetime act of self-punishment, goes into the woods, builds himself a cabin, disappears from society, denies himself all the things of a normal life, denies himself a wife, denies himself a children, uh, children, denies himself friendships, denies himself everything that everyone else in the town has. And though, though Felix never goes to prison, he builds himself a prison out there in the woods because he has been disgraced, because he is ashamed, 
because he is carrying around the guilt of what he has done. I think that many of us, at least at some point in our lives, can identify with Felix when it comes to our spiritual walk with the Lord. We have failed. We have disgraced ourselves. We have thought, and you might have thought, I've talked, talked to some of you who have said, I would have thought I had been farther along by now. I wouldn't think that I, had, I would have failed Jesus the way I continue to fail Him. I wouldn't think that I would disgrace my Lord the way I do. And maybe yours isn't a public failure. Maybe yours is a more private failure. Maybe there's just a small handful of people that know about it. Or maybe there's only one, you. But what we do often when we sin like that is we retreat to a self-made prison constructed out of sin and guilt and shame. And we punish ourselves there. We sideline ourselves from the Christian life. We sideline ourselves from the people who could most help us. And most importantly, we sideline ourselves and separate us ourselves from the person who can most help us. We all have a little bit of Felix Bush in us. What do we do as believers when we disgrace ourselves, whether people know about it or not? What is your first response? What is your first reaction? I want us to look at someone very important in Scripture who disgraced himself in a very major way. It's a story that will probably be familiar to all of us, but it's the story of Peter. I want us to see and read through the story of Peter and see that at the end of his guilt and shame, Peter found grace. And as we look at that story, I want us to find that same grace too. We're going to do something that we don't normally do very often here on Sunday mornings. We're going to read a a long passage of Scripture because I want us to get the, the whole of the story. It's more important that you actually read the story from the pages of Scripture than hear me reiterate it to you. So I'm asking you right now to try to pay attention. It's early and there's things going on this afternoon and there's things going on this week and there's things that have gone on this past week. But I'm just asking you not to zone out while we read these large portions of Scripture and either follow along in your Bibles or read with me because I want us to read through the story from beginning to end. We're going to start in John chapter 13. It's the Passover time. Jesus has been eating with his disciples and it's just been, he's just told them that somebody is going to betray him. And he's just sent Judas to go do what is in his heart to do. And on the heels of that, we pick up our reading in John chapter 13 and verse 31. John chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now let's skip over a few pages to chapter 18. Chapter 18, in just a moment, we'll pick up our reading in verse 15 of chapter 18. But Jesus has now been taken into custody, and he's at the high priest's quarters, Annas and Caiaphas. Peter and John apparently have followed along behind to find out what, what happens with Jesus. And here's what happens in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple, that's probably John, were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now skip down to verse 25 of the same chapter. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now let's go over to chapter 21. Chapter 21, we'll pick up our reading in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Just a few more verses. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. That's a long portion of scripture, but I wanted us to see the progression of what happens with Peter from beginning to end. We see Peter is full of bravado, willing even to lay his life down for the Lord. But when cr- confronted for an opportunity, with an opportunity to possibly do just that, he shrinks back from it. And yet we see the resolution, the beautiful resolution of the story of Jesus coming back to Peter and reinstating him. Peter was a disciple of Christ, and so are we. In fact, Acts chapter 11, verse 26 says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Disciples are simply learners and followers of someone, and all of us are followers and learners of Jesus. We're not just supposed to be learning the teachings of Jesus, but we're supposed to be learning to walk, the Scriptures say, in His steps, to walk as Jesus walked. And this morning, I want us, disciples of Jesus, to see a few things from this account that I hope will encourage and help us. I want us to see how Peter responded to his failure But more importantly, I want us to see how Jesus responded to Peter. You see, first of all, this. In your outline, if you'd like to follow along, it's in your program. Number one, Jesus chooses disciples unconditionally. Jesus chooses disciples unconditionally. Let me ask you this question this morning. Why did did Peter, Jesus, choose Peter to be a disciple in the first place? Was it, was it because Peter was a person of influence? And as, as Jesus' public ministry started, it would be important to have a person of public influence be on his side. Was it because Peter was a person of wealth and Jesus found it important to have the appropriate financial backing for his ministry? Somebody's got to bankroll this. Was it because he looked at Peter and saw that he was a man who had a lot of hidden potential that Jesus could develop? 
He was, he was a, a raw diamond and all Jesus had to do was polish him up. Why did, why did Jesus choose him in the first place? Well, let's go back to see who Peter was before he followed Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Peter was a simple fisherman. He wasn't even a fisherman who had turned the business into, into something that was very successful. He was just a simple fisherman. If you're Jesus and you're about to embark on three years of public ministry and you know what it's going to take, are you going to go to Elizabeth Park and go down by the water and grab the first guy you see with a tackle box? No. You're not going to do that. You're going to try to find the best and the brightest because you need to surround yourselves, yourself with the best and the brightest. But Peter is simply a man at his nets when Jesus calls him to abandon them, come and follow. Peter was hand-picked. Jesus chose Peter as one of his disciples knowing that Peter would one day deny even knowing him. Jesus chose him knowing that at his darkest hour, everyone, including Peter, would abandon him. Jesus chose him knowing that Peter was going to have a lifelong habit habit of talking a big game, but when push came to shove, fear would get the better of of him, and he would deny even knowing his Lord. Jesus would have to walk the path of suffering alone. When Jesus called Peter to lay down his nets, he wasn't taking a gamble that simply didn't pay off. Jesus knew exactly the stuff that Peter was made of when he chose him. He chose him unconditionally. When he chose him, it wasn't based on Peter's performance. God delights in doing that. When God chooses to show mercy to fallen people, He does so in spite of who they are, not because of who they are. Jesus' choice of Peter was unconditional. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it gives us a window into how God has always done these things. Look at how God talks about His people, Israel, in the Old Testament. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Notice the order here. God does not choose his na- the nation Israel because of something in them. He chooses them because he chooses them. <laughs> he chooses them and sets his affection on them. And he calls them to follow his decrees and his commands because he has chosen them. Not because he looks out and sees that they would probably be a people who would be really good at doing that. And he does the same thing for us as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 on the screen. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God doesn't choose people to be his disciples because they are suitable. He chooses people and then makes them suitable. There is a process going on right here. Jesus is doing a work in Peter. Peter is not in and of himself a suitable disciple, but Jesus is making that happen because the power does not depend on Peter at the end of the day. The power depends on Jesus. And even though Peter fails, Jesus' choice of him is not conditioned on Peter's success at following. It is conditioned upon Jesus' promise to bring him through. I make this point because I believe it ought to be encouraging to us. If you are a disciple of Jesus, God is not now looking at you with your struggles and your sins and saying, well, I guess that gamble didn't work out. When God called you, the Bible talks all the time about about people being called out of darkness and into light. When God called you, He did that knowing that your following Him would be, let's just put it this way, not as successful as you probably thought it was going to be. He called you knowing that you might fail and fail spectacularly. And yet God is doing something in you. He's choosing the weak. He's choosing the foolish. He's choosing people that that we wouldn't expect so that He gets the maximum amount of glory. The text that we just read says that so that no one may boast before Him. God is in the business of taking people who are not very good at following them and displaying His glory through them in spite of them. And God is still doing the same thing with you and I. He's displaying His glory through us in spite of us. And so if you have fallen, if you are struggling with sin, God is not done with you. God has not given up on you. God has not said, well, I gave him three chances. God is sticking with you because at the end of the day, your becoming like Jesus is his work. Jesus chooses his disciples unconditionally. Secondly, Jesus' disciples must recognize their dependence on him. Jesus' disciples must recognize their dependence on him. The picture that we get of Peter from the Gospels is not a person who lacks confidence, is it? I mean, over and over again, Peter is the first person to open his mouth. Jesus is predicting his, his death. Peter says, never. That won't happen to you. I won't let that happen to you. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's the first person to get out of the boat and walk toward him but he also immediately starts sinking. In John chapter 13, right before we read our text, Jesus is walking, washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, no, you can't wash my feet. 
And Jesus says, but I must. And then when Jesus is telling them that he's about to be glorified and he's about to go somewhere that, that they can't follow, Peter questions him, can't we? I will even lay down my life for you. You see, we all know this because we've read the Gospels before, but, but Peter opens his mouth again and again and again, and he keeps having to be reeled back. Peter is questioning whether what Jesus has said is really true. Can I really not follow you? Peter's saying, I'm brave. I'm with you. I'm going to defend you. I will go to the wall for you. I will even die for you. And what is Jesus' response to him? Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night. There's chapters after that, but it's all the events of one night. Jesus' response to Peter is, by dawn, you will have denied me not once, not twice, but three times. Now, I'm not questioning Peter's sincerity here, but Peter had to understand something. Peter didn't need to die for Jesus. Jesus needed to die for Peter. And Peter had to get that. He had to understand that it wasn't Jesus who needed him. It was he who needed Jesus. So even though Peter shows some early bravado when, when, Peter, when uh, Jesus is taken into custody, he even draws his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. He's again rebuked by Jesus. Put the sword away, Peter. I'm on a mission here. There's something that I have to do. What little courage he has immediately vanishes from the question of a little girl gatekeeper who says, aren't you one of the disciples too? All that bravado vanishes into thin air. No, I'm, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. When we read this story, I think we're supposed to see ourselves in Peter. The, this, the story is not there for us to say, wow, don't be like Peter. The story for us, the story, the story is there for us to see, wow, I'm just like Peter. I'm a denier of Jesus too. You are a denier of Jesus too. We come and we worship together on Sundays and we sing songs like, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And then on Monday, we're back following exactly the same things in a completely different direction. Or... We've had an opportunity to speak a word for Christ, to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus before a neighbor or a family member or a coworker or a friend, and instead we have shrunk back from that because we are afraid. Do you realize when you are afraid that you're doing exactly what Peter was doing? Afraid to really say, yes, I'm with Jesus, because we're afraid of the consequences that it might bring. We, like Peter, are much weaker than we think. And God wants to do a work in our hearts just like he's doing in Peter. What God wants to do to us is to break us down and completely strip us, not of our confidence, but of our self-confidence. 
Because as I'm looking through and I'm reading this account of Peter, what I'm seeing is that Peter has got all the confidence in the world, but it is misplaced confidence. It is confidence in himself. And Jesus does not want Peter to turn around and not be confident. I mean, we're going we're, we're to have a little bit of time to see what Peter does in Acts, but it is, it is anything but lacking confidence. What Jesus is wanting to do, though, is slowly but surely, brick by brick, strip Peter's self-confidence away and show him that Jesus doesn't really need him. He's the one that's in need of Jesus. And that's the word that we should hear this morning. Disciples are dependents. We are dependent on Jesus. We are weak. We are failures. And yet the gospel gives us hope. Because the gospel gives us the good news that at every point of failure, Jesus has been successful for us. At every point of failure, as Peter walked the road with Jesus, whenever he failed, he could look over, and though he didn't realize it quite yet, Jesus was being successful at every point. And Jesus was going to die for Peter's failures and give to Peter all of his successes. A denier at his darkest hour, Jesus was going to give him that. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us as well. And that is why the gospel gives us so much hope. God chooses his disciples unconditionally and then makes them dependent on him. He gives them strength through weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 says it this way, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what God is teaching me and what I think God wants all of us to learn? is that the best followers of Jesus are not the people who feel equipped to handle every situation that life throws at them. They're not the people who feel like they can give an answer to every question that life gives them. The best disciples are the people who embrace their weakness because they know when they embrace their weakness, that is the point where they truly find strength. Jesus' disciples must recognize their utter dependence on him. Thirdly, a third lesson we learn from this. Disciples must respond to failure by running to Jesus, not away from him. Disciples must respond to failure by running to Jesus, not away from him. Luke's account of Peter's denial tells us that after Jesus, uh, after, after Peter denies Jesus for the third time, this is awful. Peter, uh, Jesus, sorry, I keep getting Peter and Jesus mixed up. Jesus turns and looks straight at him. Now just put yourself in his shoes. You, you've had all the boasting in the world just a few hours earlier You've just denied Jesus at his darkest hour, and the last look that you get to have with him, probably before he's on the cross, is you've denied him, and he locks eyes with you. And you know what the Bible says Peter does? 
He goes out and he weeps bitterly. That's a failure, isn't it? But I love the way John ends his gospel in chapter 21. Because Jesus doesn't leave Peter in the weeping bitterly stage. Jesus wants to circle back to Peter because he wants to forgive him. He wants to restore him. He wants to commission him to usefulness. He doesn't want to leave Peter in a state of disgrace, his last major moment being his denial of his Lord. When the disciples finally realize as they're out fishing in that early morning when it's still dark out, when the disciples finally realize that it's Jesus, I love Peter's response. When he hears it is the Lord, he is not going to wait for the boat to slowly paddle them in. He's going to jump in and swim the 100 yards to Jesus. Is that what you would do? If your last major moment is locking eyes with Jesus before he's crucified and you've denied him, is that the way we normally respond to sin and shame? What do you do when you have wronged someone? Oftentimes, you avoid them, don't you? You stay away from them because there's this thing there. What do you do when you fail Jesus? You avoid him, don't you? I avoid him. Instead of running to the one person who can fix this and forgive and restore, we actually run the other direction. And so I think Peter's response to Jesus is instructive for us. It is our refusal to take our sin to Jesus which turns cracks in our relationship into canyons. And God seems farther and farther and farther away. And the spiritual dryness that sets in and our hearts becomes more and more pronounced. And our ability to pray decreases. And it seems like there's no possible way that our prayers can make it across that wide canyon that exists between us and God. I think that many Christians never get past the weeping bitterly part. We're like Felix. We build ourselves in our own self-made prison of punishment and shame, taking it out on ourselves as if that could do anything for us. As if God's plan for us as believers were for him to die and then us to spend the rest of our lives punishing ourselves. When we do that, we reflect a deep misunderstanding of the gospel. If you approach God based on your performance, you are showing that you think you are worthy to approach God. You are showing that in your mind, your relationship with God is contingent on how well you are doing. And so when we sin and when we fail and when we're ashamed, our first response is to make it up and then go back. Peter understood there's no possible way to make this up. There's nothing he can do to fix it. And you and I have got to get in the exact same spot. You may have sinned, and you may have sinned spectacularly, but there is nothing in this world that you can do to fix it. Except go to Jesus. 
because that's what Jesus does. He forgives based on his work on the cross. The Bible is full of references to the mercy that we can find in Jesus. Psalm chapter 86, verses 5 and 6 says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. Or consider 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Or consider Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I can't think of a better illustration of that verse than Peter jumping out of a boat. Go with confidence in time of need. Go with confidence, not because you're doing a great job, but because Jesus has done a great job for you. And you will find the mercy and rest that your soul is seeking. Disciples who fail need to remember that. Friends, when you sin, and you may have sinned big time. Run to Jesus, not away from him. Lastly, Jesus restores disgraced disciples. Jesus restores, fourthly, disgraced disciples. The last time, the scene that we see here of them sitting around a fire eating breakfast is going to call back to the reader's minds, the last time Peter was standing around a fire and three questions were asked of him. The last time he was standing around a fire and three questions were asked of him, he failed miserably. Now he finds himself around a fire with Jesus once again, looking at him and asking him three questions. But it's a very different Peter we see this time. Jesus asks him, Do you love me more than these? Perhaps Jesus is asking him when he says these, do you really love me more than these other disciples? Peter, who's been so full of bravado, the, person to, the first person to step out of the boat, the first person to, to say that it's not necessary that you do this, Jesus, the first person to be willing to die for me. Peter, are you really that? Do you love me more than these? And we see a very different Peter here. We see a Peter who is appealing not to his own ability, but appealing to Jesus' knowledge of him. Because look at what he says. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What Peter is, is saying here is recognizing, I have failed you. You know that there is love for you in my heart, though it is mixed with, with sin. And though it is tainted by my shame and by my disgrace. And what does Jesus tell him? All right. But you're out of commission. No. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Remember Jesus was teaching in, in John chapter 10? And he said, I am the good shepherd who is going to lay down his life for the sheep it's those people that Jesus was going to die 
to show mercy to that he is entrusting to Peter. Feed my lambs. He's commissioning him. He's restoring him. He asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same response on both of their parts. And he asks him that third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter is hurt. But Jesus' goal in this is not to hurt him, but to restore him. And that's exactly what happens. We've been studying 1 Peter together on Sunday mornings. And I've got to think that Peter had in the back of his mind these, this incident when he wrote these words in his letter, which we call 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4 says, "...to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering." who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I bet he's remembering the beach when he writes that. And then I want us to see one other thing. You don't have to turn here, but in Acts chapter 4, we don't have it on the screen, so I'll read it to you. Acts chapter 4. Look at Peter now. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Remember those names? They were at Annas and Caiaphas' place when Jesus denied even knowing the Lord. Now they're standing before them imprisoned. They had Peter and John brought before them, verse 7 says, and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, no doubt, Jesus, uh, Peter is emboldened by the fact that Jesus had come back from the dead. Their leader couldn't be killed. And he is further emboldened by the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, enabling them for ministry. But I think that he is also emboldened by the fact that Jesus came back to him, forgave him, restored him, and commissioned him. And now we see a Peter that is once again in front of Annas and Caiaphas, but this time he's no longer denying the Lord because he's no longer depending on himself. 
And he's not hobbled, as many of us are, by his lack of performance in the past. He has been with Jesus. He has been forgiven and he has been restored. And that is the message that the Felixes of our room need to hear this morning. There's restoration at the cross. So sometimes we talk about people who very publicly fail. We see it in the media. And the the phrase that's often used for them is fallen from grace. They've fallen from grace. They were media darlings. They were sports darlings. They were whatever. But they were fallen from grace. But as we've seen this morning, we cannot fall from grace. We only fall further into it. Because that's what we've been in all along. Every step is a step based on grace. And so your take-home truth says this. Because of Jesus, disgraced disciples fall to, not from, grace. Let's pray. Lord, we desperately need you this morning, and we recognize that. We know that we are weak. We know that we have failed you, and we know that we have spectacularly failed you. We see ourselves in Peter. We are Jesus deniers. And Lord, I thank you that your choice of us is not conditioned on our performance for you, but your performance for us. And I thank you that you do not need us to follow you. That you're not counting on us, we're counting on you. And so I pray for those of us who are wounded by sin and for whom sin is holding us back, that we would run to you, not from you, and that you would get rid of our disgrace that we would see ourselves clothed in the righteousness that you died to give us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.